News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, concerns about the Omicron strain of COVID-19 continue to cause concern, especially for travelers. And yet, new travel restrictions put in place by the Canadian government will not apply to the United States. But there are other new measures to know about, and joining us for more on that is Global National reporter Rachel Gilmore. Good morning, Rachel. Hey, how you doing? Good, thank you. Okay, so what has changed here? What do we need to know? So, (laughs) quite a bit has changed, actually, um, in terms of there's a lot of new things you have to do depending on where you're coming from. So, you know, we already have these domestic requirements for travel internally where you have to be fully vaccinated to take a plane or a train. If you are uh, flying into Canada from another country, you're going to have to be tested on site and isolate until you get a negative test result. If you are flying in from uh, one of the 10 African nations that the government has identified, you are going to have to be tested wherever you first arrive into um, the country, whether it's your final destination or not, and you will have to quarantine there um, in, I believe, a hotel until you get a negative test result. Um, On top of that, we've got the U.S. bringing about their new uh, kind of travel rules today. So Canadians who are coming into the U.S. um, will have to provide a negative COVID-19 test result that they took within the last day. So (laughs) there's a lot there. Um, And I think the government has some flow charts if you want to check for your own trip. (laughs) Yeah, that's complicated. Uh, I know. (laughs) And And I guess what is the rationale behind doing it the way that they have? Uh, so, I mean, actually, quite a few scientists that I've spoken to have questioned that themselves. Um, I mean, I, I think in many ways they want to be acting fast because of the Omicron variant. There's so much that we don't know. So they are, you know, they're, they're having this sort of quick response where they want to make sure that they are seem to be acting fast uh, because they got a lot of criticism for not doing that last time. Um, But, you know, obviously the fact that we don't have the testing requirements for travelers coming into Canada from the U.S. um, has been something a lot of experts have questioned uh, because that is a big proportion of of the the kind of incoming travel that we get. Um, But overall, I think, you know, the the government is saying that it's to address this new variant, but experts are saying it it might just be that they want to kind of be seen to be doing something fast. Right, because there's been a lot of pressure previous times, you know, people saying that, well, the government didn't move fast enough. Absolutely. And, you know, I will say all of the infectious disease specialists I spoke to, they told me that more testing is never a bad thing. You know, it never hurts to have more information. But, you know, the sort of travel bans that we're seeing directed at some um, African nations, that is sort of another thing entirely because it's, it's sort of almost punishing for some of those nations, especially, you know, South Africa was really forthcoming and transparent with coming out and explaining that they found this new variant and, and they've effectively sort of been punished um, with these really harsh restrictions. Right. So the U.S. isn't included in this, even though there are cases of Omicron in the U.S. Yeah. So Mercedes Stevenson actually kind of grilled the transport minister on that on the West Block yesterday. And he, so his answer was that there isn't um, any significant sort of amount of community transmission of this new variant in the U.S., 
Um, we know that there have been cases. I believe there was one in Minnesota from a traveler who um, had been in New York and then traveled to Minnesota and tested positive for Omicron, as well as a case of community transmission in Hawaii where someone had no history of um, international travel. So, you know, uh, there is community transmission happening in the U.S., but uh, the government is pointing to the sort of low rates of it as sort of justifying the reason. But, you know, it would obviously be a huge um, hurdle in terms of the infrastructure required to implement that scale of testing, because that is, you know, sort of uh, the most um, uh, the most visitors we get are from the U.S. So I I think it's a little column A, a little column B there, to be honest. Right. So is this then the way it stays for now? Is the government open to reevaluating? Uh, yeah, I mean, the government has said that they're going to be sort of fluid and, and reactive, um, or I guess <laughs> they'd probably be angry I said reactive. They probably want to say proactive. But um, they, uh, the government has absolutely said that they're uh, willing to sort of shift any restrictions in light of, uh, of new evidence. Um, but, you know, we have no timeline on that. So for now, <laughs> as with so much in this pandemic, we have no idea how long this will go. We have no idea if it's going to get stricter or if it will, uh, you know, loosen. And uh, we just kind of have to sit, sit tight and hope for the best, especially when it comes to this new variant. That's going to be like everything we put on a T-shirt, right? Sit tight and hope for the best. I know. Ra- Rachel, honestly, it's <laughs> thank like you. My new mantra. Thank you for that this <laughs> thank morning. Thank you so much. Rachel Gilmore, Global National Online Journalist, talking about new travel restrictions. Up next, we'll get you an update on the forecast. This is Mornings with Simi. We're keeping a close eye on what's going on out there, weather-related and traffic-related this morning. Two things are, of course, tied very closely, given that we've got our first kind of significant snowfall of the season, more than I think we were expecting, certainly when I looked at the forecast yesterday. So in some areas, you're seeing quite a few centimeters this morning. Thank you to all the people who have sent me pictures of what's going on in Abbotsford and Langley and keep them coming so we can pass on the word about where we're seeing the heaviest amounts of snowfall and what the conditions are out there if you're going to be on the roads. Simi at cknw.com. And as well, keep listening for updated traffic situations. It is quite messy in some areas because it's that heavy, wet, kind of slippery snow. It's still quite cold out there too. So keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. We will keep it coming. In the meantime, let's talk about our gas rationing situation. I guess the good news is that we have heard that the Trans Mountain Pipeline has been successfully restarted. So this morning when we hear from Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth at about 11.30, one of the big questions will be, when is the gas rationing going to end? To talk more about that, we're joined now by Dan McTagg, who's the President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for being here. Good to be here as well. Thank you. So what kind of an impact do you think the pipeline restarting is going to have? Oh, a very positive one, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. It's going to take time to repressurize the uh, uh, the pipeline, which was, of course, taken down almost three weeks ago as a precaution. Uh, but it's uh, it's likely that uh, it full flow may not happen, at least for another week. Um, again, I I would probably think that the, uh, the carrier themselves may be able to shed more light on that. But, uh, you know, full uh, output at 300 and some odd thousand barrels a day, would probably require a few days before they can uh, satisfy themselves that everything is uh, working as it should be. The flow will be very slow at first. So that, of course, uh, does mean a little further delay in uh, in timelines. Uh, and, of course, you have after that pipeline, uh, you know, the Parkland Refinery, for instance, here in Burnaby, 
which will take anywhere from four to seven days once it receives crude to be able to start up and process it and get back to normal. So I, I said this earlier uh, to uh, your colleagues, uh, Jazz Johal and to, uh, you know, to uh, Mike Smith uh, and, and others uh, here on CKW that I would probably hazard a guess that just before Christmas is when we, I think we'll probably see the province begin the process of lifting the, uh, uh, the uh, temporary, uh, you know, uh, restrictions on the amount of fuel you can buy. Right. What does this tell us about our supply, though, Dan? Like, what have we learned? I thought people have behaved pretty well, I think, overall, when it comes to gas rationing. Uh, you know, they've, they've adapted, which is great. But what, what have we learned about how we supply our fuel? Well, I think it's probably illustrated for people how fragile the system really is. Uh, and, and, you know, kudos to those who uh, were on the front line fixing this, uh, those who, of course, you know, observed uh, a modicum of uh, restraint in terms of, uh, you know, filling up. Uh, the system didn't collapse. Uh, and I know that uh, our energy sector, uh, particularly uh, those re- involved with refineries, really faced a major challenge of, uh, of finding ethanol to blend and how to get the government to provide some waivers because it's not always possible to reach, reach the octane levels that you need, uh, say 87 uh, for average vehicles, without the proper blend of, uh, of, of ethanol, which of course was a major challenge in all of this that probably didn't get a lot of coverage, but you know, folks like myself and others do have to look at these things a little bit more intently. Um, of course, it does also suggest something that I think is, uh, you know, perhaps without making a controversial comment, both pipelines, the natural gas pipelines, Fortis and Bridge, and this pipeline itself uh, didn't fail in the way that roads and rail did. So I think it's, uh, it's a lesson and, and it very much something we can draw on the, uh, the reliability uh, of, right. uh, of, of these uh, sources, even in vulnerable times. Well, this is, I wonder, like, will we learn lessons from this? Or once we get things back to normal, do you think it's out of sight, out of mind? I don't think so. Uh, you know, this could happen again, of course. Uh, you know, someone says this happens every 30 years. Uh, some are suggesting it's going to happen more frequently. All the more reason, I think, to be very cautious and to value the infrastructure that we have. We may agree or disagree with what's in it, uh, but the reality is that we're not at that point now, and we won't be for the foreseeable future at a stage where we can say no to pipelines, uh, you know, no to gas stations, no to diesel, no to aviation fuel. Um, you know, those are aspirational ideas, but I think we've all received a uh, a very needed, timely, and healthy dose of reality here. And I think that's perhaps uh, uh, perhaps some moderation in the uh, debate going ahead. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, let's hope that that's what actually happens, though. <laughs> what, what would you like us to take? British Columbians have been so amazing through all of this. Uh, what would you? What do you think we should take away from this? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think it's a, it's a lesson for the rest of the country. Uh, the way in which uh, British Columbians have responded to this uh, situation uh, where the country could help, of course, uh, I think is a classic case of what to do uh, in an unforeseen circumstance, a crisis or an emergency. I think calm heads at your, uh, among your, uh, your officials, both in the industry, both with labor and with government, all of them, I think worked and cooperated very well here. And, and it didn't have the lasting uh, you know, impact that I thought it might have had in the sense that you know, we would have seen a collapse of the economic engines of, uh, say, the, uh, the Lower Mainland and uh, Vancouver Island. It just didn't happen. And I think it's, uh, it's credit to our ability to, to manage in times of emergency. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, a, it's remarkable. The rest of the country should be paying a lot more attention. I'm not saying that as a salutary remark. It's just, to me, uh, I would have expected worse. And, in fact, uh, 
uh, the collective uh, will of people putting their minds together, putting aside their differences uh, and focusing on the infrastructure, I think, uh, won the day and will uh, will be a reminder that uh, we can manage and we are residual, uh, or rather we are in many respects uh, uh, able to uh, be resilient in these kind of circumstances. Okay, that wasn't my imagination. So we did do that. Like you did do that. We were good about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, look, I, I, I was hoping uh, that there would be no issues on the natural gas side and that the Trans Mountain Pipeline wouldn't have been ruptured, not for political reasons, but because it would have taken a lot longer to get back to normal. And although you're not out of the woods yet, uh, you can very much see light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. Um, and it really does. Uh, I mean, for the rest of the country, we're, we're feeling it too. Uh, what's bad news for you know, the Fraser Wharves and uh, for, uh, you know, the part of Vancouver is bad news for the country. One third of this economic, uh, this country's economic uh, lifeblood emanates from that port and then from your region. So it's not lost on the rest of us to spend a bit more time to say, you know, plaudits to you, to all of you there. Uh, you pulled it, uh, you pulled it off. You may have pulled a rabbit out of the hat or what I call a miracle. Well, let's hope it stays that way, right? Lots more miracles that we need to get things back up and running. But Dan, thanks so much for your time. Great to be here this morning. Thanks, Amy. Appreciate that. Dan takes the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about the restarting of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And the big question this morning or later this morning for Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth will be how much longer will the gas rationing continue? So, of course, we will have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Two. So are the benefits of those booster shots as clear-cut for us as sharing them with other nations, that's that's the thing that you know a lot of us struggle with here too. Is that we know there's a lot of countries that need more help. Meanwhile, we're you know kind of lining up here for our third shots. But joining us now is Dr. Colin Furness, who's an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Dr. Furness, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Should we all be lining up as soon as possible for those third shots? If we just look at the Canadian context and with what we know about COVID. And the Omicron variant on the horizon? Absolutely yes. But if we look at elsewhere, what do you think? Well, the bigger picture, the global picture is obviously a lot less clear. There is vaccine inequity globally. And I think if we're going to be lining up and getting our third shots, we need to be pushing really hard for global distribution of vaccines as well. Otherwise, we're going to be on an endless hamster wheel. We need to deal with this as a global problem and not just a Canadian problem. I think this is what I was curious about. I mean, is the capacity there to do that? I mean, I'm sure it is. Capacity is complicated because I think manufacturing vaccine in sufficient quantities, which, you know, for seven or eight billion people is already going to be a challenge. It's not just that. It's how do you distribute it? And then how do you deploy it? And then how do you persuade what could be a billion or more people who are quite hesitant about this? There's a long history of uh, Western nations, the global north, using the global south as, as experimental subjects for vaccination. There's a colonial history there. Don't assume that when people who with white skin show up and want to inject people in the global south, that they're all going to be lining up necessarily. So it's complicated in terms of how we build that, um, that acceptance, how we build that, uh, that trust. That's a big problem. All right, we know we have that problem even here at home too, don't we? Of course we do. It's just it's far more amplified when there are a lot of really good reasons going back a few hundred years uh, about the relationship between the global north and the global south and, and oppression and trust and mistrust. So it is, it's a huge problem. It's not just the amount of vaccine. It's how do we actually get it into arms. Okay, so how important then, Dr. Furness, here at home, how important and how much of an impact do you think that booster shot will have? 
going to be a very, very important. We still, we're still gathering data about Omicron. So the early estimates of how much more transmissible it is are, are very high. They're really worrisome. And that could mean, and it likely means, that there's some vaccine evasion going on. That's, that wouldn't be a surprise because of some of the mutations that we recognize. That doesn't mean the vaccines are useless. Quite the, quite the contrary. It means the vaccines become more important, but it means getting that third shot to boost your immunity really helps. The, the Pfizer vaccine was 95% effective against original COVID, 88 against Delta. Maybe we'll have lost a few more points. All the more reason to get that third shot because the Israeli data initially from the third shot said uh, it boosted your immunity by about a factor of six. So that's enormous. And, and I, I do have a lot of colleagues now saying, look, this looks like a three-dose vaccine. It's just taken us a year and a bit to figure that out. I, I accept that reasoning. This is a three-dose vaccine. And so if you want to have protection, you need to get all three. So in that case, when you look across the country, are we moving fast enough? No, no, we're not moving fast enough. There's no question we're not. We've been very, very slow and tentative around that third shot. I think we could have uh, taken a page out of Israel's playbook and moved more aggressively and more proactively. Um, they, bla- they blaze the trail. All we need to do is follow their example. So I think we have been slow and sluggish. And, of course, now we're trying to vaccinate kids, which is at least as vital. In fact, I would argue more so. We're trying to inoculate kids under 12 and do boosters at the same time. We didn't need to do that. We could have spread this out. Right. But also we a lot of provinces, I think, scale down, right? The big vaccination drives. And now it's like you're trying to ramp it back up again. Yes, that's true. Although when we scale it down, it's it's in terms of numbers, that's true. But what public health units do, and, and this is what where public health is is best at is doing the door to door is doing that that engagement one on one building trust in communities where there may not have been that trust every last person who says yes to getting the jab maybe they need to have a conversation uh, maybe they need to, to have some education maybe they need some time and support every person who gets that jab takes us to a safer place and so it's not a big numbers game but it's a really vital one all right dr furness thank you for your time My pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate that. Dr. Colin Furness is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto talking about all the complicated issues around getting that booster shot here in Canada. And of course, the rest of the world, it's not a booster shot in many other countries. It's just the shot, the first one or the second one for that matter. This is Mornings with Simi. There's still a lot of talk about how these weather events, the atmospheric rivers, the flooding that we've seen have impacted all the different industries around BC, particularly local supply chains. So when it comes to that, getting goods delivered to you, what type of delays could, say, building developments face? Well, to talk more about that, Luke Turry joins us now, Executive Vice President at Mission Group. Luke, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Good morning, Simi. Let's talk about what you see going on in Kelowna. How has this impacted building developments? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been very interesting last few weeks. But as a development um, construction industry, we are problem solving every day. So, you know, the highway closure is forcing us to get pretty creative. Um, we're, We're very active in the Kelowna market here at Mission Group. We have really supportive trade and supplier partners uh, they understand the difficulties of trying to keep our construction schedules. And so, I mean, they're doing, they're doing everything they can to help. Um, we haven't seen significant schedule impacts uh, to date on our projects, but there have been some delays here and there. Um, but we, we recognize that there's a backlog of, of shipments uh, through the supply chain that will likely continue to have 
some impact, certainly over the coming weeks and maybe even months. And so it's, it's certainly a risk to schedules. Boy, it sure has been a year or two for your industry, hasn't it? Because talk about lumber prices earlier this week, year, and then the pandemic before that. It must be tough keeping anything on schedule these days. Yeah, it, it's been a it's been a really interesting year, and, and of course, with the highways now, anything that's coming to the lower mainland could be affected. Um, you know, including things like windows or appliances, uh, even uh, some he- heavy equipment that we might use for particular projects. But you know, there's always ways to source and find uh, find other options. We we've heard of some industry peers that are sourcing materials from Alberta or further east, uh, even through the U.S., and maybe even making some uh, some changes to. Uh, to the design to, to accommodate. Um, but it's, it's definitely making it uh, more challenging as the, as the weeks go by. So what kind of delays or what kind of situations do you think the general public would notice then, Luke? Well, I mean, like I said, we're, we're pushing along uh, well uh, still with our projects. And because we've got such great trade suppliers and, and partners working with us, we're really trying our best to not have any uh, impacts on delivery schedule for, for our projects. Right. What about prices, though? Does this impact prices? Well, I mean, you know, a rising cost environment, that's, that's going to be difficult for, for many, but we're looking at this as a short-term challenge. I mean, we're, we're confident that when we've got our industry that collaborates with government, that we're, we're going to continue to see uh, a lot of progress on, on things like the highways. Right. Okay. So this, I mean, in Kelowna in particular right now, how busy is it in terms of the construction industry? Yeah, I mean, certainly it's a very active market. I mean, just our, our company alone, we're working on multiple high-rise towers in downtown Kelowna. And so it's, a, it's an attractive place to be. And certainly in the last couple of years, we've had a very active market in Kelowna. Do you see this as being a long-term problem or do you think it'll sort itself out in the next year or so? No, we, we certainly think we certainly see things balancing. I mean, again, we're, we're working hard as an industry and we're working with government on local sort of supply chain challenges. And so those sort of things should be in the short term. And we, we certainly hope to see things balance out in the future. Right. Okay. So despite that, though, Luke, what is the market actually like in terms of activity, in terms of people buying? Yeah, the, the market, because of uh, the attractive qualities of Kelowna, uh, certainly over the past year and a half, we've seen even a greater trend towards mid-sized cities and, and people, you know, looking at their lifestyle differently throughout the pandemic here. And so, We've seen a number of uh, different projects and, and active markets in Kelowna and really throughout the Okanagan. Uh, and you're seeing people that are coming uh, throughout different parts of Canada. Of course, this is at a time when we're, we're not seeing a, a lot of international immigration over the past year and a half. And so the, the market has been uh, supported that way, even without that sort of immigration. So it's been more buoyant, would you say, than perhaps expected? Yeah, I mean, certainly it, was, it would have been very difficult to predict this back in March of uh, 2020 when the pandemic started. Um, it's been a, a banner year for real estate here. And uh, we do continue to see the attractive qualities of places like the Okanagan with high quality of life. Uh, that will continue to be something that people are looking at. Right. So we'll just have to see how this goes. Luke, thank you so much for your time. Not a problem. Thank you. Luke Turi is the Executive Vice President at Mission Group. They are a developer in the Okanagan area talking about the type of well supply chain delays and how they've had to get a little creative when it comes to making sure they have the supplies they need. And I'm thinking there's probably a lot of other industries that are having to do the same. So if you have a story to tell us, tell me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, that snow is still coming down in a lot of areas. Thank you to Kim for emailing me a picture of what Courtney looks like right now over on the island between four to five inches of snow still falling out there, Kim. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Thank you to Garth for the picture from Port Moody. Not too bad there. Looks like an inch or two on the ground. And also uh, in West Maple Ridge, looks about the same. Thank you to Linda for sending me that email. Let us know how things are going, where you are. Snow's supposed to let up uh, over the lunch hour and then turning to rain. So I don't think it's going to hang around, but yeah, it's still been messy out there all this morning. Well, we're going to talk about the snow situation, of course, but also at this time of year, it looks, puts you a little bit more into the holiday spirit, perhaps. Not so generous at this time of year is the amount of waste uh, a lot of things generate. I hear this from parents all the time. You know, when your kids are little and then you open up all the presents on Christmas Day and then you look around and you go, oh man, this is a lot of garbage. Is there a way to reduce all of that? Well, joining us now is Jack Froze, Mayor of Langley and Chair of Metro Vancouver's Zero Waste Committee. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? I am good, thank you. First off, what's the snow situation like where you are? Well, looking out my window, it looks like it's kind of a rain now, or, you know, heavy rain. It's, and but you know, it's, it's it's a white, it's an early white Christmas, so a perfect time, like you said, to start talking about uh, what we can do to reduce waste for uh, all of our Christmas uh, gift giving. Yeah, I th- do you think this is something that a lot of people realize now, particularly when it comes to looking at all the stuff that kids get, and you look at all the packaging that goes with it. Oh, I know. It's not not only you know the packaging. It, it seems that uh, everything has to be packaged in in great big you know, colorful packages with lots of plastic, lots of cardboard. And then it's all the wrapping paper that goes around it. And uh, it's it just, you're right. You mentioned that great big pile of garbage. I remember that when my kids were small. What do we do with all of this? It normally got jammed into a bag and into the the waste, which is really not the right way to do it. No, I guess not. So why has Metro Vancouver decided to take this on? You know, it's, um, uh, we've been at this, this program for about 11 years, and uh, it's really to help people uh, find ways to reduce their waste. And, and we find that most people, um, I don't know where to get the number from, but 80%, how they figure that out, I'm not sure, but 80% are looking for ways to reduce their waste. And we're, we're there, to, we're up for the task to, to give you a whole bunch of ideas on, on what you can do this Christmas to, to uh, reduce your waste. All right, well, let's start with that then. What are some of the things we can do? Well, first of all, um, you know, there's, there's different ways you can give gifts. Um, you know, you can help those in need. You can make a donation on behalf of, of others uh, to, to help those that are, that are, uh, that are needy and, and can use the money. Uh, and that's one way of, of uh, giving. Another way is give uh, experiences as gifts. You know, it's uh, always a good idea to um, support local, uh, buy someone, uh, you know, tickets to a play or dinner, a favorite restaurant, um, all kinds of things. One year I bought my son's uh, a sturgeon fishing trip on, on the Fraser River and what a great bonding experience that was. So, you know, all, all kinds of things that you can do. Another thing is give gifts that last. Um, you know, uh, some, some, you know, we can give, uh, you know, you look in the store and there's a choice between something that's not going to last very long or something that's going to really be uh, kept around for many, many years. And, and, you know, thinking about what you're giving, spend a little bit more and give something that will last and won't be end up in the, in the landfill or recycling. Right, that's and, a good idea because people don't like the disposable stuff anymore, just in general, right? And yeah. we try to buy less disposable stuff. That's right. You know, it can be, uh, you know, some, if you have a baker in the family, you get a nice, good quality baking trays or cast iron pans or high quality knife set, things like that, you know, you can, you can uh, provide. Another good way is just basically reducing your wrapping paper. You know, instead of using single-use wrapping paper, use re- reusable materials like, uh, you know, a tea towel or or if someone's a traveler, wrap, you know, wrap the gift in an old map, you know, just, just something fun, you know, use your imagination and, and come up with uh, creative ways to wrap your gifts. Um, I know, uh, 
we used to use a, a box, you know, a nice Christmas box that, that was reused year after year after year. And uh, I'm just and thinking right now as you're saying that is that I have a drawer full of Christmas bags yeah. <laughs> that, I, yeah. that I reuse every year for this exact same it, reason. Exactly. We all have them and receive them. And, you know, I don't throw those out. I, I keep reusing them. And, you know, you get that wine in that, in that nice bag. Yeah, it's it's regifted the next year. Right. Do you think people are are paying attention to this, Mayor Froze? Like, are they making these changes? I think so. You know, it's over time we've become more aware of the waste that we produce and what it's doing to our, our environment and uh, our economy and and everything else. I think we're paying more attention, and uh, it's it's more in the forefront. So uh, you know, people are looking for ways to reduce the waste. And there's some great uh, tools that Metro Vancouver has to just just to help people find you know, ideas, gift-giving ideas, and, and, and what to do. Okay, where can I find those tools? Well, you can go to, thanks for asking. <laughs> that was a, a good leading question. You're it? welcome, yes. <laughs> uh, CreateMemoriesNotGarbage.ca is a, a good site for low-waste gift wrapping and decorating ideas. Uh, there's a Merry, May, oh, I've got to say this again, Merry Memory Maker app. And you can get that as all kinds of uh, low-waste gift ideas. And also MetroVancouverRecycles.org will help you uh, recycle your shipping packaging and, and uh, find the different recycling rules in your own municipality. All right. That's something we should be doing now, I guess, and getting ready, right, for yeah. Christmas morning. Yeah, for sure. I know I've been struggling the last uh, couple of weeks. What, do I, you know, what kind of gifts do I get for, for you know, those in my family? And, and uh, some of these ideas have been helpful. Something that lasts. I like that. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, thank you. You have a nice Christmas. You too. That's Jack Froze, Mayor of Langley and Chair of Metro Vancouver Zero Waste Committee, uh, talking about essentially ways to reduce your waste. You've had that, you know, if you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about, that once the kids have like torn through all the presents on Christmas morning and then you look around and go, oh my goodness, what, what a pile of garbage this is. Now reducing it before Christmas morning is a great way to go. Lots of good ideas there. All right, uh, let us know what's going on in your neighborhood snow-wise. Still coming down here in downtown Vancouver, but not sticking as much as it is clearly in other jurisdictions. So simi at cknw.com would love to hear from you on that.